This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Last year, the government announced a plan to get rid of rats, possums and stoats and make New Zealand predator-free by 2050. The aim is ambitious and wonderful and not possible with the current techniques that we use to control these pests. At the moment, we rely either on trapping or the use of toxins such as 1080. What's needed are completely new tools, ones that will be both very targeted, i.e. they're only going to affect one kind of animal, and also able to be quickly used across the entire country. Genetic tools are almost certainly the answer, and when this is discussed, the terms gene editing and gene drives keep cropping up. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm very confused about what these are and what they can do. So I'm off to the University of Otago to talk with my two go-to geneticists, Neil Gemmell and Peter Dearden. Gene editing is a technology for changing parts of a genome. Right? In the past, when people have talked about genetic modification, a lot of the time we've talked about taking a gene from somewhere else and putting it into an organism. Gene editing is a different approach. It uses some key things that all organisms do in response to DNA damage and uses them to be able to change individual base pairs or individual sequences in a genome. So instead of um, having to put in DNA into a genome, we can use these gene editing technologies to change an individual base pair in a genome, so make a variant of a gene so that it does something different, or delete a gene, or change the way that the genome is organized so that a particular gene doesn't respond to a particular Uh, environmental stimulus. So instead of the sort of old idea of we have to put something into the genome for us to change the biology of that organism, we now have the possibility of making edits in the genome, which isn't adding DNA from another organism, it's merely changing the DNA of the organism in front of us. And you could even think about that in terms of, you know, we know that in particular plants, a particular change in a gene causes them to be drought tolerant. We could make that change in, in a plant and make that plant drought tolerant just by editing that one base pair. No, no added DNA, no extra bits of DNA added in. So that, that's the, the key technology, and it relies on us being able to, strangely enough, cut DNA very specifically. And that's where CRISPR-Cas9 comes in? That's right. So CRISPR-Cas9 is a system which enables us really quite easily to target specific sequences in the genome and to cut the genome at that point, so cut a piece of DNA. And organisms hate having their DNA cut, and they respond in two ways. They look at the, that bit of DNA and they say, oh, there's a, there's a break in the DNA there, I need to fix that. And they either look for bits of DNA which have a similar sequence and copy those bits of DNA into that gap, or they take those two ends of the, of the DNA and they jam them together fairly randomly. And so 
we take advantage of those two processes, one of which is called homology-directed repair, so that's where it looks for a piece of DNA that's similar, and one of which is called end-joining. And so if we jam those two pieces of DNA together using end-joining, what often happens is we cause a mutation at the site of that cut. If we use homology-directed repair, we can actually uh, get the genome to put any sequence we like into that gap. So using those two technologies, we can do all kinds of things without really adding anything to the DNA. I often use the word processor analogy. So imagine you have a sentence on your word processor and you just want to make a single change. Maybe you've made a typo in an email, um, something I do probably 50, 60 times a day. So, you know, instead of putting in an and, maybe I put an at or something. And so then I go back and I'll, I'll fix that. And literally with the CRISPR-Cas9 system, that's the sort of edit that you can make. You can look at a, a, a typographic error uh, or, a, or, or introduce an error into the DNA sequence um, with, with great precision. So you can replace words, you can change letters, if you and like. So you could change the meaning of a word in this yeah. analogy and, and relatively and easily relative. just by changing a single letter. Exactly. And so that's, that's the power of the technique. And it's being used in a lot of different contexts now. You know, so you know, from a trivial point of view, you could probably use it to change the colour of uh, Drosophila's eyes if you wanted to relatively easily, single-point mutation. So any traits that we know are governed by relatively simple genetic changes. We can, we can, we can edit those um, into the genome very quickly. And, and it's already being used in a sort of commercial context to make mushrooms that don't brown as quickly. Um, the point is that um, it is a powerful technology and it could have huge application just in its own right for, well, first doing really cool science to explore um, the basis of, of genetic change on phenotype, for example, so you know how we look um, and how our metabolism works from everything from uh, reproductive traits through to um, developmental traits through to uh, behaviours even, if you like. So that's really powerful. But, of course, uh, commercial companies are interested in the use of this as a tool for editing traits very quickly. For example, drought tolerance or salt tolerance uh, in crops. That would be, if we know the mutations involved in, in, in genes of, major genes of interest uh, related to those traits, you know, you could engineer those in relatively quickly and cheaply. And it also has some uh, huge uh, implications potentially in health where we have uh, genetic disorders that we are aware of that are the result of single base changes in a single gene. And some of these are, are, are devastating, you know, so people that are suffering from uh, heritable blindness because of a single point mutation. There is now a program in China targeted at the idea of using gene editing technologies to, um, to cure that. And, you know, we can talk about the social acceptability of such technologies and in a broad context people may have some concerns about the use of these technologies but I bet to the parents of a kid who has heritable blindness the idea of a cure, I mean you know, a real cure um, must sound immensely appealing uh, let alone to the individual that's actually suffering from the trait. If you, for example, use gene editing to cure someone of a heritable blindness is that trait then going to be something that they, in turn, could pass on to their children? That's a very good question, and actually it's not going to be fixed unless it's fixed in the germline. So in China and now in the UK, there are programs to genetically modify human embryos using CRISPR-Cas systems. Now these currently are experimental and are done on embryos that are the products of IVF that will not 
carry on to, to be an adult or a child. But uh, the point there is to identify these diseases early enough, make that edited change and see whether that will ameliorate the disease so that can be done in embryos and we can look at the metabolism and the biochemistry. But if you did that, then that individual would not have the disease and, and they would not no longer be a carrier for the disease as well. So there is this possibility of ending those familial, fairly simple genetic disorders. And that technology isn't 10 years in the future, it's happening right now. The barrier here, all the technologies that we require now, people have gene-edited human embryos, those human embryos could be normal ones which could be implanted. So we are at the point of really we need to discuss how the, the, that technology is used in humans now because in a year's time we'll be thinking about gene-edited people. We'll come back to that, but at the moment I have one more thing I need a definition for, gene drive. That's something I keep hearing about. I don't understand what it is. So gene drive, it's not an old idea, but it was really invented as a way to spread a gene through a population of organisms. Normally if uh, you're a, um, a heterozygote, for a particular uh, mutation in a gene. So that means you and I, all of us sitting in this room, are diploids. We have two copies of our genome in each cell. When we talk about someone being heterozygote, what we mean is that they have two copies of every gene, but at a particular gene, one of those copies is different. So instead of having two copies the same, we have one copy which is different from the other. So normally, if I was passing on my heterozygous status, if I was was reproducing, 50% of my offspring would receive the gene that was different. 50% would receive the one that was, was, let's call it, normal. Gene drives are a way of ensuring that every one of my offspring receives that different gene. So it's a a biotechnological application of, these days, usually CRISPR-Cas, which transforms that normal allele into the different allele. Okay, that transforms that normal gene into the different gene and ensures that all of my offspring pass on that difference. The idea here is that actually that means that instead of the, uh, an element we put into a genome being inherited in a normal Mendelian typical genetic manner, actually it increases in number in the population because every one of my offspring will have it even if I only inherit one copy of that, of that element. So this takes the the. CRISPR-Cas technology a step further. So remember that CRISPR-Cas technology will cut a piece of DNA. So the idea here is that when we cut that piece of DNA, we hope that the the genome, the organism, the cell will look for a similar piece of DNA somewhere else. And what we do is we ensure that we provide that similar piece of DNA and so that the um, cut cuts that normal gene and copies in the abnormal variety. So in all those cells, there's a little activity going on whereby everywhere there's a normal gene, it gets transformed into one of these, these, um, these different ones. So it uses the gene editing CRISPR-Cas technology, but in fact most of the time for gene drives to work you need to make a classical genetically modified organism because you have to insert the enzyme that does the cutting. That Cas9 enzyme is a bacterial or microbial um, gene. Humans, uh, ducks, Wasps don't have it normally. So for this to work, we have to put that activity in the genome. So gene drives use gene editing, but they're also a normal genetic modification process. So you can think about this as as we take a gene drive, we we convert this allele, and if that confers some sort of sensitivity to the organism, then you could see that that, as that gene is driven through a population of of that particular organism, that could be used to modify that organism's response to the environment or to reduce its reproductive capability, thereby causing the gene which is being pushed through the population causes the population to collapse. And that's 
the possibility of using this technology in a, in a pest situation. Can you give me an example, Neil, of how you might use it? Just to quickly summarise, so the gene drive technology is effectively a way to perpetuate gene editing within a genome, and it's, it's incredibly powerful, and it is classically GMO at the moment. So an example of this, uh, and this is something that we're, we're talking about at the moment, is to try to use gene drives to make all male offspring in mice. So the proposal is, is to develop a, a gene drive system which is then linked to a gene called SRY, which is the gene that is the master switch that turns individuals early on in development down the male developmental pathway as opposed to the female developmental pathway. So with that single gene, um, individuals will become male. Generally they'll be infertile though. But there are people around the world now talking about using this to create populations of mice which will, from generation to generation, become more and more male. And the modelling would suggest as you have more and more males and fewer females, very rapidly, perhaps within 10 generations, the population will go extinct. And the gene drive works to an extent that probably 95% of individuals that are produced will be male versus, say, 5% female. And there's a project now underway involving Australian, American um, and now potentially New Zealand partners uh, that will be exploring the use of such technologies to make um, effectively mice which could be released into the environment or rats or perhaps stoats or possums released into the environment that could ultimately make those populations go extinct, effectively eliminating our pest problem. Exactly, so a permanent form of pest control. Yes, yeah, I mean, you know, I think this, is, this could be the test bed for gene editing and gene drive technologies within the New Zealand context, um, whether it be to control wasp populations or uh, mammalian pests, uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure which is going to emerge first. Obviously there's this huge international interest in rodents, there's huge international interest in mosquitoes and there's already significant work being explored or in fact actually being done um, in parts of the world where mosquito-borne diseases are, are huge costs to human health. And so the Eliminate Dengue program now has something in the vicinity of $50 million from the Gates Foundation to actually take a gene drive technology uh, into, um, into the environment and, and see whether it has the potential to control or eradicate dengue. There will be similar programs for malaria, there'll be similar programs for other malarial-borne diseases. I suspect that's where we'll get the first international proof of concepts of such ideas, but I think New Zealand may not be that, that far behind with respect to wasps and perhaps uh, with rodents. However, you've mentioned the words which I think will raise people's hackles, so we need to talk about that, genetic modification. So there's enormous potential in this technology, and the advent of gene editing technologies has made this easier. That's, that's why we're really talking about this now, because in the past, this idea has been around for a little while, but the way that you could cut the genome in a very specific way hasn't been available. So CRISPR-Cas enables gene drives. However, when you look at the literature on published gene drives, they all come with problems. Uh, and so w there's this impression that um, a gene drive system will be a magic bullet that wipes out a population and, and we're good to go. And we are nowhere near that in any system except in lab animals and the lab animals that where this has been affected well the, the only real effect of gene drives published are in yeast uh, on in, in a laboratory and in drosophila the geneticist's favorite animal the, the little fruit fly that has been published in mosquitoes but both of the gene drives published in mosquitoes as proof of concept in lab 
haven't worked effectively because of the fundamental problem with the way that organisms deal with a break in their DNA. As I told you, they either copy in a piece of DNA, which is what we would like them to do, or they jam the ends of that broken piece of DNA together, forming a mutation. That mutation will make that version of the gene resistant to the gene drive. So the very process that, that we would like to happen, which might push something through, through the environment, produces resistant variants. There's a probability that these gene drives will be um, quite effective, but the view, I think, that they will be a miracle um, which will wipe out whole populations is perhaps not quite the case. And this comes to the genetic modification issue. Actually, at this point, we need to know the risks of using gene drive situations, and there are many of them, and we need to know the benefits. There's a huge difference in the way um, I think the people might respond to to me saying, well, I've developed a system to kill wasps. If I release this genetically modified wasps, it'll kill 20% of the wasps in the environment and we'll need to release 100,000 of them every year for this effect to occur, then I think people might be a little leery of that. If I say I need to release seven wasps and by releasing seven wasps we'll wipe out all the wasps in the country, then they might have a different view. So I think that actually there's a lot of information to be generated. The other really big problem here is that we talk about using gene drives glibly, but it's actually only been done in model organisms. Mice have been studied genetically for hundreds of years, Drosophila for over 100 years. Um, Mosquitoes, uh, in terms of um, this, are close enough to Drosophila that actually we can use that knowledge. So we know how to put genes into these organisms. We know what genes to target. As Neil talked about, the SRY gene. We know about that gene in mice. We don't know about that gene in possums. We don't know about... Uh, the genes that are used to target in Drosophila in wasps. We have never made a transgenic possum, don't know how to do it. To make a transgenic mammal, you have to super-ovulate them and produce lots of oocytes, put them into culture, do in vitro fertilisation. There's a massive amount of technology and background knowledge which is required, which we just don't have for the pests that affect New Zealand. Mice, we might have a good crack at. Rats, they're pretty close to mice, but actually it's taken a long time to get us to, to genetically modify rats in a lab situation. Possums, we don't have, even have a genome sequence of them. Wasps, we're sequencing the genome at the moment, but you know, so there's a lot to be learned before we can deploy these technologies. So uh, I think now is the time to have the debate and work out whether we wish to use these technologies, but in some respects that debate needs to be informed by real data. Can we do this? If we can do this, what are the parameters around it? What is the effectiveness? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And I think that a mature discussion about risks and benefits might get us to the point where people say, actually, the benefit of reducing the population of wasps, for example, to New Zealand is so great that actually these are uh, things that we might think about. Yeah, just to come back, so the, the gene drive construct, if you like, is, is an artificial piece of DNA that is going to be inserted into the genome. So that's by anyone's definition, is, is genetic modification. Whereas gene editing might be edits of this organism's same DNA. Under current New Zealand law, it counts as... It counts as GM. Gen- GM, right. Whereas so, in so the US, it doesn't. The, yeah, whether that's the correct approach or not, that's the, yeah. that's the law's current law. Look, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things legislatively that need to be tested on this. First, it's a GMO, and there are some uh, issues with respect to current gene drives and modelling work and indeed some empirical work suggests that over time they could break down and stop working. There may be workarounds on that and there's a paper just coming out today that suggests a way in which you could work around that which is by effectively having multiple of these so-called guide RNAs 
which would then and uh, reduce the probability of, of the gene drive stopping working. But that's yet to be tested actually in an organism, it's just a theory. And I guess that's sort of one, one thing I want to sort of point out here is that we're in a space at the moment where we have good theoretical uh, expectations, there is some modelling that supports that, there is very little empirical work that has been done. There has been in flies, there has been in mosquitoes, mouse is coming, but actually it's a long way behind um, the insects, partly because of generation time and there's a guy called Paul Thomas um, at Adelaide in Australia who's probably leading the way on gene drives uh, in mice Um, and then as Peter very very um, importantly pointed out the issues with these other species that we're going to try and target are, are enormous from a basic biology point of view through to how would you breed them I mean, let's hypothesise briefly that we actually have a gene drive that works in a laboratory situation for a mouse, and then we want to release that into the environment. Uh, And society has uh, indicated that the benefits significantly outweigh the costs, and partly that's possibly driven by the fact that the way we control vertebrate pests in this country at the moment is already contentious. Uh, With the 1080 issue, one that um, may provoke a lot of people to say, well, um, GMO sounds a lot better than 1080. Not saying that's what the consensus view will be, but maybe it will be. So then we get this mouse, um, and then we might decide we do a laboratory trial, and that might take two years for us to get to a point where you know, we've run, say, ten generations of mice, and we've got some indication that there's population control. And then we might decide we're going to do it on some small scale in a secure enclosure in the environment, because the environment's going to be quite different from the lab. And lab-bred animals tend to do really badly out in the wild. So then we do that, and that might take us another two years. Because what I want to come to here is the goal of eradicating these pests by 2050. So what are we now? 2017, two years in the lab, 2019, 2021, we do an enclosed field trial. Then we decide that we might actually try something of a larger scale. We go to an offshore island, somewhere that we've eradicated mice from before. And after public consultation, we decide we're going to put mice back on there with the view that uh, we'll let that population go to a certain level and then we're going to eradicate it again. So we do that. So that's, I don't know, another two, three years. So where are we now? 2024. And this is just mice. And then we decide that we're actually going to do it on scale. And then we realise actually we've got nowhere to breed these mice, maybe this offshore island. I guess what I'm saying here is that just to get to the point of actually doing this on scale, if we want to go through the genetic path, it's going to take a long time. And mice are easy. Right? And mice are easy. M- mice are the vertebrate that you could target at yeah. this point. Rats are harder. Rats are harder. We don't know why rats are harder. We don't know why it's harder to do GMO on rats. But, you know, people have tried for 20, 30 years in the clinical uh, setting because rats are a better model for many clinical purposes than, than mice are. And, you know... That's not insignificant resource that's been but, put up. You, you tell me that you want to make a genetically modified stoat. And, uh, yeah. So sto- I'm thinking you've got some years away. So, so stoats, we, the only people who know anything about stoats really are the Russians and the Americans for the, uh, because of the mink industry, which is a closely related species. And then possums, well, you know, the only people in the world that give a damn about possums are New Zealanders. You know, all these other things we've talked about, rats and mice, are global issues around food um, surety and food security um, and also disease. So we can piggyback off of significant international funding in that environment. Um, Stoats will be our problem. Possums will be our problem. 
So we would want to be in a position that this is now cheap and tractable enough that we could do this relatively easily. And, you know, again, what's a possum breeding facility going to look like? What I'm hearing is that these techniques have huge potential. We're not there yet. So that's fine. As a member of the public, I'm happy for you geneticists to beaver away in your labs and work it out. But the moment you turn around and come out and go, hey, everyone, here's something we can do, this is when people are going to start going, excuse me, but aren't we GE-free? And this sounds terribly Frankenstein, and why are we doing this? So what should we be doing about that? There is an ethical and a moral discussion that we need to have as a country. You're absolutely right. There needs to be a conversation with the public. There needs to be a conversation with the public about gene editing, um, and I think you know actually things like gene editing human embryos, and and that's that's probably actually a technology which is more mature than gene drives. We need to have a conversation about where people draw the line between the different varieties of genetic modification and the risks and benefits. We need people to think again, perhaps, about genetic modification. I think in the past it's always been, uh, uh, you know, a large company's going to make more money because they're using a, a genetically modified strain of wheat, which, which is herbicide-resistant, so you can grow it more, you spread more herbicides. These don't sound like things which are compelling to an individual. I think pest control is an interesting issue because it can be compelling to an individual. I mean, my particular target in this is, is wasps. So New Zealand is, is afflicted by two species of wasp, the common wasp and the German wasp. The, the biomass of wasps in our native beech forests is higher than anything else. Right? They're just, they're, they're, there are more wasps out there. The weight of wasps is, is bigger than the weight of, of rats and bigger than the weight of mice by orders of magnitude. I mean, it's really an amazing thing. And I remember when I was a kid, um, we used to go tramping in, in Nelson Lakes National Park. We stopped doing that because it was full of wasps, and that was, you know, happened in my lifetime. These things are pests. They damage our beekeeping industry. They annoy our kids at school. Everyone hates wasps. So there you've got a possibility where actually a genetically modified approach to pest control would be beneficial in that it controls a, a conservation issue, it controls an economic issue, and it's a, a species which is universally hated. And I think that uh, wasps are a lot easier to deal with than mice in making uh, gene-drive situations, so we need to learn a lot about them. But we still need to come back to it, New Zealand individuals and say, these are the risks, these are the benefits, what do you think? Right? Because I, that's, the, that's the critical problem. In 10 years' time, I'm pretty sure we can have a fairly effective gene drive system in wasps built in containment in labs. We can demonstrate the value of it. We can calculate all those risks and benefits, but it comes down to the public being asked the question, where is the risk, the personal risk and the personal benefit for you? You know, I think we might be surprised at how the New Zealand public respond to that. I think we have, um, obviously, uh, a sort of a vague anti-GM sort of ethos in this country, but I think when it comes down to questions of can we improve our environment and our conservation estate, can we improve the economy for particular people, that might be a different question. So I think showing value to the individuals who make the decision is the important point here. But, yeah, as scientists, we will generate these systems, right? We're interested enough that we will push ahead to see if we can generate these systems in containment, in a safe way, so that we can tell you what the risks and benefits are. When it comes down to it, it's the public who makes those decisions. So we need a conversation. I mean, this is a starting point, right? Uh, the technologies, uh, sort of the gene drive technologies, gene editing technologies, are only about five years old, really. 
Um, and so the pace of change has been quite astounding. I mean, even at a scientific level, it's hard to keep up uh, as a professional and working in this, in this area. So I have huge sympathy for those people who are interested um, but just not able to follow quite what's going on. So we need to have these conversations. It's possibly time to have another Royal Commission around this, this sort of technology that will be costly and will take time. But we're seeing... Uh, initiatives coming out of the US, we're seeing initiatives coming out of Europe, the UK, Australia, that are challenging the public to engage in what this will mean for the future of, of, the, of their nation, in health, in agriculture, in, um, in the environment. And we need to probably start doing that here on a much more, in a much more directed fashion because internationally these decisions will be made. We've got a choice here about whether we want to have some leadership uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the thought uh, and discussions around the applications of these techniques in our own country or whether we just want to follow uh, international trends. And I guess with GMO, we... We're following international trends. We were getting GMO products. Um, nobody was necessarily aware of it, and that led to quite a large level of public backlash, I believe. I wouldn't want us to be in that position here. And we can be intelligent about this. So, yes, we're nuclear-free, but people still get X-rays. People still have radiation therapy. People still use um, radiation in, in, a, in a variety, or nuclear sources in a variety of different contexts. Okay, so we can be GM-free, or at least in principle, uh, for, for some particular purposes, if that's what we choose, but we can also be intelligent about where we may say, well, actually, the social benefit here is so high that we, we want to use this. We also use GM in medicine. You know, vaccine development is highly driven by the use of, of, of GMOs. Uh, we buy that in uh, every year to, to treat... Uh, and immunise people against diseases that uh, are hugely problematic if we don't immunise. I think we can be smart about this. Uh, we shouldn't be scared to have the honest conversations. The answer may be no for some things, and I think we need to be prepared to address that as scientists. We're not always going to agree. But the point is that, you know, for example, in the conservation area, this idea of synthetic biology, the use of gene editing to um, either develop ways to make pests more susceptible to eradication or to actually reintroduce variation into populations that are suffering from inbreeding depression is, is immensely controversial. And we're already seeing sort of two polar camps establishing now at uh, meetings like the IUCN, so the International Union for Conservation of Nature, that are basically saying, no, this should never be done, and this is led by people that you'll have heard of and probably respect, like you know Dame Jane Goodall and David Suzuki. You know these are these are people whose whose opinions are worth listening to, and I don't agree with them, by the way. And then there is another group which is very, very uh, vehement about how how great this technology is and how it can do everything from you know eradicating pests to making black-footed ferrets not carry black death and actually restore genetic variation in those populations to even de-extincting stuff. Um, and these, these folk are worth listening to too, um, but they're in that sort of, you know, technology can solve everything sort of 
camp. I don't agree with them either. So I'm sitting right in the middle on the fence, which is, I think, where the fertile ground is to have really smart conversations about what parts of these arguments actually make sense to us as a country or as individuals first, because you've got to make an individual choice. And then, ultimately, those individuals will make decisions which will affect what we do as a society. That was Neil Gemmell from the Department of Anatomy at the University of Otago. And we also heard from Peter Dearden, who's in the Department of Biochemistry, also at the University of Otago. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.